is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, November 21, 2020. Political science. That was my major at Colorado College. Same with Andrew Stretman, only he went to CC's arch enemy, DU. I say Trump is really dangerous now. Trump and the Trumpsters, his cult following. Andrew says, calm down, Craig. Andrew is a Republican political pro. He does it for a living, not me. Listen to the two of us debate and decide who's got the better take. I hope you enjoy both of us. Next comes Alexis King. I really enjoyed my conversation with the DA elect in the first judicial district. What a big job. And I think she's going to be a major force in the criminal justice world and maybe the political world. She's the first female district attorney in Jefferson County history. Alexis King joins me in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Then the lounge stays open for old pal Mike Foote, Senator Mike Foote, Democrat from Eastern Boulder. He's left his mark in the legislature, championing the national popular vote as embodied in Prop 113, which just won. Mike and I kick around current events, but please listen to the troubadour. It's not just Dave Gunders this week. It's his father, Henry Gunders, a special appearance from the East Coast. We talked last week about Felix Sparks, the liberator. Check out my Colorado Sun column about the man I got to know, former Colorado Supreme Court Justice Felix Sparks, World War II era hero. Same with Henry Gunders, except he was born in Germany. Wait till you hear about how he got out and how he then fought for America. He's a modest man, a great man, an American success story. And boy, does he have a proud son. Dave Gunders wrote a beautiful tribute, My Dad. You have to hear it, and you can. Stay tuned. Andrew Stratman, Craig Silverman here. I'm here to challenge you to a poli side debate. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's go for it. Colorado College versus the University of Denver. I'm a poli side graduate in 1978. When did you graduate, DU, or did you? 2012. 2012 versus 1978. Are you ready? Let's do it. First, tell everybody how you've been. For those who follow this show, and I know I do, I had a lot of smart people who were previous guests, and they spoke about election 2020. Andrew was a very memorable guest with the courage to write an op-ed piece in the Denver Post, just identifying Michelle Malkin and her problematic nature. That brought me to Andrew. And then I had him on. He's a genius. So 
Why are you putting your genius to work these days, Andrew? <laughs> Too kind, but I've uh, you know it's been election season, so my firm has been has been busy working for you know Republicans and nonpartisan races alike, really until election day, and then was lucky enough to be a part of a, a ballot cure for a judicial district and manage that. So now that our ballot cure is through, it's really time for me to relax a little bit, take stock in things, and and see what things look like, particularly for Colorado, but also nationally moving forward. And what happens if a Democrat calls you and says, hey, I'd like you to do some ballot cure work for me? (laughs) Well, we're a conservative firm, so we do Republican and nonpartisan races. I actually don't know of any Democratic firms that do it. And, if you know, if I had a friend or something like that on the other side who did it, I might reference them, you know, but it's not anything I would do. You know, we uh, were I get into this business and got into this line of business because I have ideas and I believe that, you know, center right and conservative policy prescriptions are best for this country. And I live that up. That's where we're going to battle. But not yet. Let's brag on you some more. You are victorious for John Kellner. It's big race. It's DA in 18th JD. Amy Patton has been a guest. I hope John Kellner will be someday. I don't think I've ever met the man, but You went to work for him and you pulled out a come from behind victory. Explain how that happened. What do you mean by ballot curing? Sure. So ballot curing is a process where mail-in ballots, a certain percentage of those mail-in ballots, a very small number, are rejected by the Colorado Secretary of State. So usually that's a signature discrepancy. So if you sign your ballot with in a manner that is entirely different other ways you've signed your ballot. It is initially rejected by a computer and then goes in front of a couple of sets of eyes. And if they agree that it looks discrepant, you are sent a letter from your individual county clerk that lets you know that your ballot has rejected, but gives you the opportunity to cure it through an affidavit. That's the most common reason. Sometimes it's also for new voters who don't attach a photo ID copy with their ballot or didn't sign their ballot. So when races are really close and there's always this small percentage of ballots that are, you know, Democratic, Republican, or unaffiliated that are in need to be cured. And what happens when those races are very close is the various parties engage in a week-long war of going to their ballots and getting them cured. Now, in the past, that's the traditional way to do that is through an affidavit. Hopefully that person mails back their affidavit that they receive from inform from the clerk. But a lot of times it's going in person and having a clipboard, explaining the process, taking a picture of their photo ID and giving it to the respective clerk. Now, in the era of coronavirus uh, and also just increases in technology, we've had the Secretary of State release a tech secure program in early October. And we were very lucky that we had a large number of folks who used the text program to cure that still has a legally binding affidavit and still need to put in their voter ID, still need to show photo identification. But we were able to reach our pool of voters through text, phone calls, safe at the door uh, touches as well to collect ballots. And we were we were very happy with the with the results and able to hold on and, and hold the race for Republicans in, in that J.D. Well, it made some other people unhappy, and it doesn't sound like a fair fight because you just indicated that you're a company experienced and for hire to do this for conservatives and that there's no counterpart on the Democrats. Yeah, you know, look, the, Demo- the Democrats run it through their state party apparatus, and, and you know, I, I, I think they certainly did so for, for this race as well. But uh, 
like I said, if I knew someone, if I knew a firm that did it specifically, I might on the other side, I might refer them. But at the end of the day, my priorities are Republican. And I was so happy that, you know, really in a, in a year in Colorado where there were so few Republican victories for yet another cycle, we were able to come in and work with a great team of volunteers who really helped us in our mission to, to hold to hold that JD. I mean, it really, it's, uh, it's. Well, explain how far behind you came from, because Amy was up well over a thousand votes. And sure. Then- and then we had a good combination of, of curing our voters as well as big ballot swaps in the counties. What are ballot swaps? Good question. So if you are a Denver County voter and you dropped your ballot off in Arapahoe, Arapahoe and Denver will collect those ballots because look at the local level, you're going to be voting on local things. So it doesn't make sense for the Denver clerk to be processing an Arapahoe ballot or vice versa. Shouldn't those ballots be disqualified for people being, Oh no, no. (laughs) I think, uh, I think a lot of people like, and look, particularly because the front range has blown up. One of the things that was really beneficial for us. I'm kidding. I don't want to disenfranchise (laughs) anybody. I'm not a Republican. Go ahead. Well, (laughs) well, what I think is really, uh, you know, not to, you know, I don't don't want to take sole credit. I think we also had a lot of good ballot swaps in our favor. I think one of, you know, a lot of folks who live in Elbert County work in Douglas and Arapahoe, and we had some pretty big ballot swaps between those counties and Elbert's a pretty Republican red county. So we were we were lucky to have some good salutary ballot swaps there as well. Salutary. Holy cow. I let you get away with discrepant, but. You're putting some fancy words into this competition, Mr. Strutman. I try, I try. But just give me the numbers. How many votes did you get for John Kellner that he would not have gotten if he didn't hire your firm? So, so and I appreciate that, but the part of the problem with the cure is it's hard to tell, right? Because we don't know who that person voted for. Just brag on yourself. This is the age of Trump. You got him 10,000. You turned the tide how much should be- right? What I will say then is, had we not run an efficient operation, I think it's fairly likely that this race would be very, very close or perhaps flipped. I think I we're very lucky to have good volunteers, and really, our firm had the experience of of doing this before in other capacities and ballot curing, really understanding how to walk a voter through a process. Time out. This is volunteer work. I hope you're not giving this away for free. No, I'm not. We had a volunteer component with Republican activists. So a lot of what we did was working with individual Republican activists to make phone calls and go to doors as well. And part of the reason for that is, you know, if you were to get a letter in the mail saying that, you know, your ballot has been rejected, but there's a cure, particularly in this era, really with this election cycle, with so much mistrust about, you know, about elections and things like that. It really is helpful to have a Republican activist be the person to talk to that Republican voter and say, I'm working with this organization who's accredited. We are working directly for this race. It's really close. So you do that rah-rah Republican stuff, huh? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's a, you know, curing is a partisan effort. I am legally and ethically obligated to cure anybody's ballot. If they, if like, if, if they ask me, so if I go to a door and they say, oh, I actually voted for Amy Patton, then I'm, you know, I'm morally and ethically obligated to run through the same process as I would for somebody who has, you know, a MAGA flag and, you know, a bunch of other memorabilia in their their front yard. Are you sure you're 
a Republican? I've been a Republican all my life. How close is this race? Is it decided? Has it been certified? Can we visit the White House and get it changed? <laughs> well, so it's just outside the margin of recount. However, recounts very rarely change many votes. And I think we're seeing yeah, that. We that. just saw that in Georgia. So really, while it is not official, our transition process has begun and we're you know, we, as far as my firm is concerned and, and the Republicans who worked alongside me to, to help with that, the matter is essentially closed. Disrupt the transition. Oh, that's right. It's George Brock's <laughs> buddy, John Kellner. That's got to be like, I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And you made it happen. Let's move on, shall we? Because the sure. national election kind of caught my eye and you and I talked about it. I am very concerned right now, Andrew Strutman. I see the Republican president, you can't walk away from that, leading a very dangerous big lie. And I'm well aware of the context of those words. Third Reich-like big lie, so big and so preposterous, yet 70% of Republicans are buying this bullshit. And I see Rudy and Team Rudy, including Jenna Ellis, a Colorado Republican, standing up there swilling this bullshit. And I'm worried about the survival of my country. Can you allay my concerns? I'll do what I can. First off, yeah, I, I won't walk away from the fact that the president of the United States is a Republican. I've, I've worked the last four years of this administration and the president being the standard bearer of the party, despite some very significant differences with the president. I've continued to work for Republicans at a local and state level in ways that advance my values and, and my principles. I do also think that, you know, not believing in the ultimate results of an election is not something that is uniquely partisan or uniquely Republican. I think we need to only go back to Georgia in 2018 to see where Democrats essentially refuse to refuse to believe in election results in that in that race there. I will say, I think a lot of this is really the cult of personality that was built up around the president over four years and, and the inability of Republican elected officials to create that emotional distance between the rhetoric of the president and, and practical reality is now playing out in an electoral loss. I think you have a lot of base Republican voters who were convinced that the outcome would be different. And when now that the outcome has shown to be very most likely different, they're susceptible to arguments about being able to go back to the conclusion that they thought they were going to have. And I think one of the things that I try to remember, and look, I share a lot of your concern about general wanting to believe in election integrity and a smooth transition of power. We've been dealing with this really with the president and this style of governance. Trumpism is, is not so much a governing philosophy as a criticism of governing in the first place but or at least governing in the conventional sense. But we've been doing it for really four years and five years of, of candidate Trump. And we're about two weeks out from election day. We're, we're like past it. We're very, very blip in time in comparison. And that gives me a lot of comfort. It certainly doesn't make things less frustrating. I've been really heartened to see the Republican electeds who have stood for election integrity, whether that's in Georgia or individual senators who have gone against their base or gone against, frankly, pretty significant political pressure from the administration to do so and have walked a good line that the president does have the right to pursue these legal means. But this is the process that we're, you know, believing in and we're going to take everything that's said in, in these various press releases or, or press conferences with 
with the grain of salt that they require. And that, that's something for the courts to handle. So in general, I'm not as worried about it. I think it's very frustrating, certainly for someone who is skeptical of the president, as, as I have been since he came down the escalator. But I think at the end of the day, we're going to avoid certainly the, the large scale electoral violence that was suggested in the days coming before the election. And really, as those voters move more into a different grieving process, frankly, with a candidate that they truly believed in and a president that they truly idolized in a lot of ways as a fighter, as that reality sinks in, I think those folks will process a lot of those, a lot of those feelings in the months to come. We're not quite there yet. Andrew, I admire your willingness to criticize Trump. I don't know if you want to volunteer who you voted for or not. I won't put you on the spot because I know you have a business to run. Sure. I, I, uh, I, I, made, a, I made a public post on Facebook in, in, in late October and that I didn't vote for the president in, in 2016 and I did not vote for him again. I voted uh, conservative conscience. And I think folks can derive whatever conclusion they want from that. But that's where I'll leave that. To me, I respect that. Did you say no to Joe Biden or what did you do with your vote? conservative consciences, you know, I, I really think that I think and that's and really the question is part of that. We're in this unfortunate bifurcation and really tribalism where even for me to for me to even say that I voted conservative conscience brings up that question. And I think that that's really moot. at the end of the day. I voted I voted my conscience and I voted for someone who I believe that exudes presidential leadership. That could be anyone but not Donald Trump. You're a good man, Andrew Strutman, for recognizing that reality. But you sugarcoat it, my friend, because the danger of Donald Trump accelerates. With every day, he comes closer to inauguration of Joe Biden, which means the end of his immunity. And this guy is not going down easy, and he is convincing 70% of Republicans that the election was rigged that is a prescription for disaster moving forward. I wish there were more Andrew Strutmans. You have to be among the 30%, aren't you? Well, yes, certainly. And I also, you know, to, to, to walk back a little on that, I think, you know, again, confusion or misinformation or distrust of the electoral processes or really of, of things that presidents do in general is, is really nothing new. I think we're seeing it new in a in a presidential level for a transition. But if you look at the early aughts, you had significant numbers of Democrats in who believed in Lee Hop or Me Hop for, for the 9-11 attacks. Again, Georgia's gubernatorial. Like there are there are certainly there's certainly American precedent for this sort of thing. And I actually disagree. I think that as we move forward, the danger becomes less and less. I think you're starting to see that these legal proceedings in the various states are the, the president's campaign is batting worse than a pitcher, which is, I guess, officially anachronistic now with the designated hitter. But they're not doing very well in court, suffice to say. And I think as that desperation continues and the cases become less grounded in reality, I think you will see less danger for the American populace and for general the general good feels moving forward. You are trying um, to win this debate with big words like anachronistic. <laughs> And I think you might be winning the game, but I just worry about the purge, the purge of competent people in the military and cybersecurity. Doesn't that worry you? Don't you think he's up to something? I honestly believe he's doing the bidding of Vladimir Putin. 
And I know I studied Soviet-American relations at CC, so I might have an advantage over you, but that guy never accepted the breakup of the Soviet Union. And to me, he's got Trump by his testicles. So doesn't that concern you? So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the, you know, the firing of various officials. Sure. I, I, I do think that's concerning. I think it's nothing different than has occurred throughout this administration, which is that individuals either get to a breaking point with the president and then resign or they're, they're pushed out. That's not something new. And I think as we move into the lame duck, what is most likely obviously to be the lame duck phase of this presidency, we're going to see some of those sorts of things. And, and we did. Look, we, you know, we saw Darren Beatty, who is a former speechwriter for the president, fired for speaking at a conference with, with white nationalists, be brought back into the administration for an appointment post on preserving American heritage abroad, which has actually received some, some pretty significant pushback. So look, either... Wait, time out. Let me slow you down. Darren Beatty, sure. this white nationalist club, what's that called? Sure. So the the uh, Darren Beatty worked as a speechwriter for the president. Was fired over uh, after it was resurfaced that he spoke at the H. L. Mencken Club in 2016. The H. L. Mencken Club is a loose organization of old and new sort of alt right figures. Uh, Paul Gottfried runs it. He's a professor emeritus over at Elizabeth College. Um, Mencken was a Baltimore journalist, what, in the 30s, 40s? What do you know about H.L. Mencken, Mr. D.U.? So I actually have a copy of Mencken's American Language in my library. Uh, someone, obviously a great man of letters, but somebody who's uh, whose views, frankly, the 1930s on, on Jews and African-Americans and things, while within the general unfortunate framework of American anti-Semitism at the time, aren't really anything to be emulated. Really, the H.L. Mencken Club is more about a place where writers for American Renaissance, V-Dare, Occidental Quarterly, a lot of these sort of highbrow, if you will, alt-right folks. Occidental Quarterly being out in Southern California? So, no, it just means the West. Oh, okay. um, so, yeah, and that's run by William Regnery, who's uh, who finances a lot of this sort of stuff. But suffice to say, the Mencken Club is Regnery Publishing. Yep. Yeah. And pardon me if, I, if my dominant thinking about H.L. Mencken is two words, Jew hater. Oh, certainly. And look, I think I mean, it's difficult to read some of the things that were written from him in the 30s and, and not, you know, not understand that for what it is. My God, why don't they name it the Charles Lindbergh Club? What, what's going on in this? Darren Beatty, is he a white nationalist? Andrew Strutman, um, you yeah. are an expert on these things. Yeah, I would say he generally is. I think he's certainly a part of the alt-right and those organizations. The Mencken Club has Gottfried as its founder who coined the term alt-right. Richard, Richard Spencer was their treasurer, and he, you know, he floats within those circles. He's boosting Nick Fuentes on Twitter. In fact, on November 11th, two days before he was appointed as commission, he made a tweet about American society not being it being incompatible with what he describes as looters and riggers. And riggers is for your viewers, which I won't obviously go too far into. What I will say for someone who can read between the lines is that it's a very thinly veiled alt-right phrase that's used in racial connotations in a way to get around Twitter and other organizations' codes on hate speech. Right, but these are racists, right? Well, sh sure. I think at least people who are so obsessed with 
with what they see as America's racial identity and they want to preserve it, that they do so at the expense of others and, and don't think of the United States as a, as a melting pot of pluralism. And look, it's a, it's a lame duck appointment that at the end of the day is, is fairly meaningless, but I think it's indicative of the larger point that, frankly, this fever swamp of, of conspiracy and hypernationalism and white identity has really really come to fore in this era and is now sort of, we'll see what happens with it. Right now we're seeing they're getting their final things through this administration with an appointment like that, but we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens in the next couple of years. I think the you know future of the Republican Party is obviously one that should not be with those folks. And I've, I've stuck my neck out for that, but We'll see what we'll see how things go in the months to come. I hope you're in charge, but I worry about Matt Gates. Tell everybody what Darren Beatty is doing now. Sure. So he he has just been appointed by the president to a commission on preserving American heritage abroad. So that's a commission that's initial reason for existence is to preserve Holocaust and ethnic cleansing sites in Europe out of concern that they wouldn't be preserved by respective European governments. So there's an irony in that. Also, he is Jewish, a Jewish person as well, which adds another layer of complexity to all of this. But I would encourage folks to read what, you know, what the ADL said with, uh, about in their press release. Of course, with a grain of salt, is the ADL is, a, is not a perfect organization by any stretch of the imagination, but one that carries a lot of deserved weight. And Darren Beatty, isn't he working with Matt Gates now? A Trump wannabe in Congress? So he was. So so he yes, after being fired as a speechwriter for the campaign, he then was picked up by Congressman Gates. And Gates is Gates certainly out Herod's Herod when it comes to the president and is a pretty good fit for that brash populism, fringe, no enemies to the right mentality that unfortunately has been too common in, in, in the last couple of years. Okay, you can see it a lot. For Republicans, it's amazing. I love it. That's why I hope you become a Republican leader. See, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a concession as much as it is a recognition of, of things going too far or things that need to be, yeah, Right, but you you've you you've been ostracized. You caught a lot of crap for your piece against Michelle Malkin, who's a darling of Denver Trump Radio. And you brought up Nick Fuentes, the griper, and Malkin's association with these Holocaust denying demons on the right. And these people need to be purged from your party, and I'm afraid they're dominant. You say, Well, we'll probably take care of them down the road, but I'm not sure the Mitt Romney Republicans, I expect you voted for Mitt Romney without reservation, right? Uh, certainly. Um, I do think that, look, I think it, I don't think it's as simple as to create the dichotomy between a Mitt Romney-style Republican and the, the fringy, you know, the conspiracy-mongering, race-mongering types. I think it's a little more complex than that. I do think, obviously, those people need to be given, you know, given no place of leadership or recognition within the party, and we'll continue to do that. And as you know, as far as I'm concerned, when I talk about these issues with other conservatives, I use conservative sources. I share articles from National Review, Commentary, National Affairs, The Dispatch, all good conservative magazines to talk about things like, you know, race baiting, alt-right, QAnon, all of these fever swamp things that have really been swirling and swirling and swirling as we've moved up towards towards election day. Now that those folks did not have their preferred candidate win, we, I think, again, they'll go through that process of, uh, of understanding the loss. And it's up to Republicans as a whole to 
figure out what to keep from the Trump era and what to jettison moving forward. Have you thought about how this big lie has some roots in Denver, Colorado? Have you followed Dominion voting systems and the I have. And look, I think Wayne Williams, uh, you know, former secretary of state, had a great Facebook post the other day chatting, talking about the integrity of Colorado's system and using Dominion. I think I think again, I think that the president has has been his own, ironically, his own worst enemy for a lot of these things. Let me spit out that it started with this. What is it? Joe Oltman, who has an organization that held a rally at Bandemir, and then Randy Corcoran, who has my old time slot on Denver Trump Radio, nine o'clock Saturday morning. He's going to expose Dominion systems, and he's buddies with Michelle Malkin, who's saying Dominion is the source of it, and it would all be okay. These are Colorado crackpots, but this is the strategy of the president of the United States of America. He's adopting this crap, and it flows out of Denver, Colorado. And I think that's pretty darn fascinating, don't you? Look, I, I do. And I think, again, we are two, a little over two weeks out from it. And I think the folks, you know, hell has no fury like a convert. And folks, some of the folks that you mentioned went from being some of the most vociferous anti-Trump persons in the Republican primary in 2016 to now diehard loyalists. And they are out that loyalism right now. Look, I respect a lot of people who who begrudgingly supported the president or had pragmatic reasons for doing so. As a Republican, I'm a big tent guy with with strong flaps. But at the end of the day, this continuing of this process ad infinitum is really it's unfortunate. I think it's 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 not unexpected. I mean, this is something that had already been talked about. It's something that the president had already telegraphed to to the right. base and still yeah. 70 percent of republicans go along with it it would be like 70 percent of republicans saying they believe all-star wrestling is on uh, the level it's not this is a bunch of bullshit but it's dangerous bullshit and michelle malkin just tweeted no electoral justice no peace and she's the mama of the groipers and the guys who were occupying washington the other night how many more weeks do we have to give this, Andrew, before we say this is a threat? We're, you know, we're in a pandemic. How can any Republican justify a lack of transition? Sure. Look, I, I think uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a necromancer, so I won't uh, or really a Nostradamus type. So I won't I won't give a prediction on when I think it will be over because I think it's a process. But look, as I said earlier, when the administ now that the administration's legal cases in these states seem to be generally phasing out. I think you're going to have a week or two of you know real uproarious behavior rhetorically from some of these folks. And you know, Michelle Malkin, this isn't as if Michelle Malkin has now decided to be, you know, rhetorically bold. It's been a it's been a thing that she's done for a long time. Um, but this is also, you know, this is also the movement who chatted a lot about how, oh look, you know, we were concerned about rioting if Trump won. And now that it looks like Biden has won, of course, there's no rioting because we're better. So they're operating on these these variant planes as they're as they're processing this. And they're taking they're taking it out on on Fox News of all of all places, which is now apparently fifth columnist insufficiently pro Trump and uh, danger to the conservative movement, which if you teleported back in time into the salad days of the 2000s, you could really confuse somebody by telling them that conservatives would be would be bashing Fox News. Wow. Yeah, they're all in the target heads. I think you might have won this debate, but I don't think it will be resolved till 
Inauguration Day, January 20th. I want you to come back on because if I hear you correctly, you're saying, Craig, your concerns are overblown. And is that the bet you're making? Because I think that Donald Trump will cause problems and I'm not sure we get through January without big problems in America. So what I will say is, you know, I think it's it's obviously valid to have to have those concerns. And rhetorically, the president has done himself no favors, of, uh, you know, in, in terms of allaying that from from folks. Uh, if I could give the kiss of death to the columnist, Noah Rothman at, uh, at Commentary wrote a great piece called The Dumbest Accus several days ago that talks about this process. And as someone who studied the Soviets, I think you'll appreciate it because it starts with the analogy of the, of the 1991 coup attempt. And it explains a lot about really the, the farcical nature of a lot of this process. And, and look, I think a lot, like I said, I have a lot of understanding and empathy for people who expected a different electoral result and are looking for answers why. And I think that when they look for those answers, they're being led by the president and others into wanting to believe something that is very most likely not true and is frankly undermining a lot of not just, you know, the transition of power in the United States, but in a smaller level, the success of the Republican Party. Just if I could for a minute, the fact that Republicans held the United States Senate while Donald Trump appears to have not won the presidency. And with the average of legislative Republicans running two to four points ahead of the president should be a positive thing for Republicans moving forward. It's that swing voters were able to make the distinction between I don't like the presidency of Donald Trump for any variety of reasons, but at my local and smaller level, whether that be U.S. Senate down to the New Hampshire legislature, I'm going to stick with Republicans. I think that should give these Republicans who are really struggling with the loss a lot of things to look forward to in a post-Trump era. And I think maybe that maybe we'll see that in the next couple of months and a lot more perspective and circumspection, but maybe we won't. We'll see. You are a brilliant analyst. Let's stay in touch. My only argument with you about your dream of a big tent Republican Party, for example, have you been invited on Republican shows to make your points against Michelle Malkin or do those disinvitations continue? So, you know, I've not been invited. I've not I've also not pursued it. So I don't want to go out and say that, you know, I've I've been asking and it's been denied. You wrote wrote a great op ed in the Denver Post and you were talked about on right wing radio, but they never gave you the dignity of an invite to come on so you could tell them the truth from Andrew Stratman. Yeah, well, I pre- you know I appreciate you saying that. And look, at the end of the day, the the the, the right of center policies that I want and the governance that I want is something that right wing talk radio and I share. While we while we vary in degree and in temperament and in some other respects and priorities, like look, uh, politics is coalitional at the end of the day. And I like I say, I'm big tent with with strong flaps. Somebody like Michelle Malkin, particularly what she became, is is something that should be outside the tent now. Would I want in a dream Republican Party to have the same kind of rhetoric as the average talk show host? No, because that's a little separate from governance. But it's not inseparable from Donald Trump. And isn't what you are really saying is you don't want the big guy in your tent. And I love you for that. Isn't that it? Trumpism has no room in a modern, successful American political party, maybe in a totalitarian dictatorship, but it ain't going to work here. And I'm offended as an American 
And I think you are, too. I think that, that depends on what you describe as Trumpism. Right. And like that's going to be the story that's written for, for years to come about the rhetorical and policy based changes in the Republican Party, particularly on things like trade or adopting you know, ideas like an America first foreign policy, which really is, is diametrically opposite to you know, neoconservatism in the 2000s. It, it certainly depends on what you mean by Trumpism. I mean the racism, the bigotry, the Michelle Malkin, the teetering on the edge of fascism. I can't stand that stuff. And I don't see any difference between the tweets of Michelle Malkin and Donald Trump these days. Well, I certainly think that the president, whether that, whether or not the president holds those views is immaterial. I do, I do think he has, uh, and we saw it in the campaign, he has an unfortunate inability to ever distance himself, never distance himself from some, a group or organization that likes him. We saw that with QAnon. We saw that with Proud Boys and other things that the president likes to be adulated. And that is certainly very, very troubling. I think sometimes a lot of these Trump-leaning folks are talking about Trumpism as, you know, working class coalition, reaching out to working class voters. And look, the Republican Party was doing that pre-Trump. And, you know, President Trump accelerated the move of the white working class into the Republican Party from the Democratic Party. So there are some aspects of really the, the, the catch-all. But I will say that my personal preference and what I want to see moving forward is much more in manner with, you know, traditional Republican principles, okay. rightly understood. You. You're, way out, you're way out in front in the Republican Party. And here I am trying to push you further out in front. I admire you, Andrew. Let's plan for some time in late January, God willing, to talk about a peaceful transition to a Biden administration. Thanks again, Andrew. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bye now. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. 
He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Now back to The Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What a thrill to welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, Alexis King. She is the new elected district attorney in Jefferson County, also Gilpin County. It's the first judicial district. Am I right, Alexis? It is for a reason, Craig. Gosh, that kind of hurts for a guy who worked 16 years in the second judicial district. But tell everybody why you're more important than Denver. Oh, wow. You know, the the world does go past Sheridan Boulevard and Jeffco is a huge district. We go all the way up to Boulder and all the way down south and past Chatfield and down along the Front Range. And from any day of the week, we have stuff going on in urban settings, suburban settings and rural areas and then up to Gilpin. So we have two counties. And Gilpin is, of course, our gaming town. So really happy to be a part of the office again. I was there for 10 years as a deputy DA, and it's just a wonderful group of folks who try to do good work every day. So excited to to take it to the next level. It really is a fabulous jurisdiction. My wife, Trish, is a Bear Creek grad. She grew up in Morrison. And so I'd like to think that Jefferson County is part of my family, too. Well, you've claimed all of Denver, so you, you know, all well, that I actually, have. Yes. Denverites claim Red Rocks, so I can understand that, that uh, impetus there. But when a crime is committed at Red Rocks, it's Denver, correct? That's, that's right. And sometimes the cases are investigated by Denver and then filed in Jeffco. So we uh, have a little overlap there. It's a beautiful, expansive jurisdiction, and it's changing quite a lot. And the politics of Jefferson County in my lifetime have changed. But let's talk about El Paso County, where you grew up. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I grew up on the west side of Colorado Springs, kind of near old Colorado City, for those who are familiar with that town. And my folks uh, met at Colorado College and never left. And, you know, it was just a really nice place to grow up. It reminds me a lot of where I raised my family in Golden and with access to the mountains and access to the arts and really just loved being there. But it was it was small. So went far away to college on Virginia, a small women's college called Hollins. And then came running back to the West. (laughs) Uh, Time out. I need to find out more about this CC love affair of your parents. First of all, they must be awfully proud. I read up on your campaign and it sounds like your parents were an important part. You have two kids in elementary school. But wow, the excitement of winning. Tell us about your parents and when did they graduate from CC? So um, my mom graduated in the early 70s. My dad didn't graduate. He is actually an alum of UCCS. He ended up having to put himself through the rest of school. So he was an early UCCS grad. And, you know, they just really always worked on social issues in the community and 
really uh, had a, a perspective that we have to serve. And it, it was with that mindset that took me to nonprofit work after college and then to law school to, frankly, be a prosecutor. Uh, that's where I thought I wanted to be, and that's where I went. Wow, what an interesting story. I think back to Colorado College, kind of a liberal bastion in conservative Colorado Springs. Sure. And, and the first primary I ever participated in, I was a Democrat. And I had my first girlfriend, Nancy O'Malley, who went on to become a, a lawyer. And she was for Hubert Humphrey. Yes, that's how old I am. And I was for Frank Church. And we kind of had an argument about that. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, what did, did you, were you attracted to CC for the block plan or for just staying closer to home? Or what, what drew you Here's down there? Here's the thing. My older brother had gone there. I liked the block plan, but I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player because I was delusional. So I went back east <laughs> to play basketball, and I quickly realized I was more likely going to be a lawyer than a basketball player. And everybody back at this small school, Uppsala College, which did produce two NBA coaches, my coaches, anyway, they said, you're from Colorado. What are you doing out here? And by the end of the year, I said, what am I doing out here? Right. I, I went back to Colorado College and I played basketball at a low level there and I got to play golf and baseball. You know what our home course was on the CC golf team? What? The Broadmoor. Oh, stop. Honestly. But we got a run of all the courses there. Gates, Country Club of Colorado, Coach Jerry Carley, who I bet your parents know well. He was a member of the Colorado Springs Country Club, so I got to play there as well. It was fun, and I loved the block plan, just loved it. I don't know if my hippie parents were running with the same crowd there, Craig. Well, they had a football team, and Coach Carly was a legendary coach there. I bet they took a look at that, but I don't know <laughs> your parents. Were they really happy? Tell us about election night. Tell us about the thrill of victory. COVID puts a damper on a lot of things. I was lucky enough to celebrate with a couple that's been supportive of me from the beginning and my husband on a deck outside with a lot of furnaces or, you know, um, uh, fire pits burning. And then because it's COVID, we hopped on a Zoom call and frankly shed some tears with our amazing volunteers. And we just had an wonderful groups, uh, group of folks advocating for us in the community. And it was very meaningful for a Zoom call. And then hopped off and talked to, you know, some of the state Dems and some of the other orgs that have been supporting us along the way and talked to the media. And oh, I think about 10 o'clock, I, I got to have a cocktail. So, you know, it's not really the big party that I was hoping for, but I'll take it. We had a great victory. And I think it really speaks volumes about where Jeffco is as a county and their willingness to elect qualified women to positions of power. So what was the final vote total? About 55, 45, something like that? Yeah, we were, we were it's about a nine point spread. And was there suspense? Did you know you were going to win? You know, it's so hard to know, but we felt very confident going in and we were thinking that the 
seven o'clock tallies would give us a pretty good sense of where we were. We had an amazing field plan for COVID and by field, I mean phones. We did 34,000 phone calls to unaffiliated voters in Jefferson County. We covered a pretty big swath with mail and we had a huge text program of over 100,000. So despite not being able to be on doors, we had a lot of outreach. And that was after making 23,000 calls to Democrats in the primary. So really strong outreach by my team and an amazing management of our volunteers. Well, tell us about the race. You competed against a veteran prosecutor, Matt Turkin. Did you guys have debates? We had some town halls that were very civil along the way. And, you know, I think we both have a much different worldview. And that was apparent to voters who wanted to have that kind of side by side comparison. I always do, though, appreciate when my competitors use some of my ideas. And so as we got closer to Election Day, I think that was part of the process was hearing more about what we need to do for folks dealing with addiction and mental health and the things that I really care about. So, you know, it was a good race and I'm glad he ran and I'm glad we won. Are there any hard feelings? No, he called me the day after the results were pretty clear and uh, we had a very nice phone call. Well, that's nice. I remember when I lost Bill Ritter, I walked to his big party and I shook his hand. It was snowing. And then we had been good friends because we started together in the DA's office. And Well, sure. It only took about 10 years for us to go back to being friends. But now that's been a long time ago and it's wonderful. I ran as an unaffiliated candidate, and I said politics and prosecution are a poor mix. And I think I was ahead of my time. What do you think? I think that the day-to-day operations of a DA's office are apolitical. But I think that when it comes down to the other discretionary things that a DA can get done, worldview is starting to matter more and more. And I think with the murder of George Floyd, the idea that we're going to keep politics out of DA's offices is gone by the wayside. We really have a lot of systemic issues to address. And at the moment, where I stand, there's, I think, more eagerness to address those issues and to be forward thinking about what else we can do to earn public trust. I agree with you. And I would modify what I had to say. And obviously, when you're deciding whether to file charges on people, you don't consider their political party or anything like that. And in a perfect world, maybe there could be unaffiliated candidates who can win. But that's not reality in America. It's not reality in DA races, even though it was pretty exciting for a while there in my race. But Let me ask you about the current political spectrum, because I've had conversations with Brian Mason and Amy Patton, and I don't really know their competitors, and I don't know Matt Durkin either. But right now, I would say that the biggest factor for most people voting is, do you support Donald Trump or not? Because that has to do with law and order. And if I don't know the people, and if they have an R behind their name, and if they're standing by Donald Trump, then I think that's bad judgment. And the one thing I want more than anything in a prosecutor is good judgment. So I said that to Amy, I said that to Brian, and I'd say that to you, Alexis, that 
I'm glad you won because I don't know, did Matt Durkin support Donald Trump or did that ever come up? I don't know if it ever came up directly. You know, he was certainly active in his party and made that known. I think the number one thing that we heard in talking with so many voters was, again, Jeff Coe, I think in general, and you look at our legislators, wants to elect qualified women. And so that was something the voters wanted to talk about. And we did talk to a number of unaffiliated who felt like they were more pulled to the Democratic ticket this time around. But beyond that, we have to and gladly serve our entire community. And the safety of all is the safety of one. And so just really thinking in those broad contexts. But I'll tell you, in talking to voters, it was a lot about electing a qualified woman, and it was about looking at a stronger Democratic ticket this time around. James, I hadn't thought about the gender aspect, but you broke ground. You're the first female DA in Jefferson County and the first JD. Am I right? That's correct. Well, mazel tov on that, I guess, because I come from Denver and I got hired by a strong woman, Brooke Wanake, who mentored me with a bunch of other great female lawyers. And Beth McCann was in the office when I broke in. So I've always, and my sister's a super smart veterinarian, I've always thought women are more than capable of doing anything. But look at that. <laughs> You're the first female. Back to uh, yeah. Jefferson County and the way that they voted. I saw it was like 200,000 for Biden to 150,000 for Trump. That's kind of surprising for those of us who thought, wow, Jeffco's kind of conservative, but with Donald Trump, that's really not the case. Yeah, you know, I don't remember, frankly, Craig, the presidential numbers off the top of my head, but I do think that our unaffiliated overwhelmingly voted on the Democratic ticket this time. I still think, though, when we look at our registration numbers, we're still 30-30-30, and so it really, the, there's great power in our unaffiliated voters out here in Jeffco. Right, and great disdain for Donald Trump. What about Gilpin County? Is it more liberal or more conservative than Jeffco or about the same? Gilpin is one of the most independent places and they vote based on, you know, what they believe in. And I, I don't think Gilpin wants to be pinned down and I'm not going to pin him down today. It's a pretty independent county. They, I think, I think voted overwhelmingly to legalize marijuana, but they have other, you know, issues that they're very conservative about and they just vote with what works for Gilpin County. They have to be hurting up there right now with uh, the COVID, the uh, travel industry, is the COVID and the down budgets, are they going to affect your office? Are you worried about that, Alexis? I think everyone in the state should be worried about budgetary impacts right now. We, Jeffco has some, well, we're, we're a wealthy county, but we are one of the few counties left that's under Tabor. With the rollback of Gallagher, we're going to have to see how that plays into our operations on a county level. We, though, have, unlike Denver, Craig, we have so many municipalities that are not under Tabor anymore. And so there's kind of this interesting combination about what's happening at the county level versus what our law enforcement agencies can do at the local level. It's not a clear-cut thing, but I think everyone's going to be tightening their belts in the next couple of years for sure. I bet they are. Last week I had on Joe Salazar, who I see was one of your endorsers. Yes, he was. You had a great list of endorsers. Did any endorsement surprise you or especially thrill you? 
You know, there's a couple that stand out for me. I've got to tell you, in the primary, my big endorsers that really kind of got the ball rolling, I felt, were first and foremost these amazing female legislators that lead us here in Jeffco, Representative Carrie Tipper, Senator Brittany Pedersen, and Senator Jesse Danielson were amazing to come out and stand with me in the primary. I really enjoy Joe Salazar. He challenges me every step of the way, and I think that's probably good for us elected officials. And then Governor Ritter endorsed me in the primary. And, you know, Bill loved being a prosecutor, and he really still loves the work that we do, and I was really honored to have his support. Right. And what deep ties he has to the Jeffco office with his close friendship with Dave Thomas, who I also worked with in the Denver DA's office. And then Bill's son was a prosecutor in Jeffco, correct? I Yes, I think he was briefly. Yes, I remember that. Anyway, Bill Ritter, you know, he never lost an election. I certainly didn't break that streak up for him. <laughs> And you're right. His son did work. I know we just didn't cross paths as far as assignments go. So what are you doing now, Alexis? Are you hiring people? Uh, what's it like to be DA elect? When do you take the oath of office? So I'll be sworn on January 12th. And right now I have two members of my leadership team announced. One is Jennifer Rhodes, who's a former Adams County DA and also a longtime Jeffco County chief. She has a long background in sex assault prosecution, and she'll be really focused on the prosecution and trial work of the office. And then I have Amanda Gall, who actually has a background in corporate finance and then worked as a DA in Jefferson County, also specialized in sex assault work. She's currently a lobbyist with the Colorado District Attorney's Council, and she'll be outward facing because, frankly, she's perfectly suited for it. So it's a great team. I'm really excited to have them. And we're just working with Pete Weir right now to move the process along and make sure that come January 12th, everyone feels like they, they know what's coming next. So we're really excited to be hard at work. How is your relationship with Pete Ware? He's a consummate pro. I hope it's good. He's a Republican. You're a Democrat, but I bet it's a professional thing. Oh, 100%. You know, I worked for Pete for a long time, and I think he just wants to know the office is going to do good work. And so he's been more than helpful to make sure that we have the information we need in order to make our decisions and get to work come January. And I bet a lot of people are out there listening, maybe even to this podcast, wondering, wow, I have a job as a deputy DA. How many people will stay? How many people will go? Are you looking to hire line deputies? If lawyers are out there, should they apply? You know, I think we'll post openings come January if there's if there are any, but we have a lot of talent in that office and we're going to make sure that we've got people in places where they can thrive and frankly, where we can handle the level of backlog that we've got coming down the pike with COVID and, frankly, the amount of violent crime that's happening right now with folks kind of being shut in and not as many access points to services. When you look to hire a deputy to go be a frontline prosecutor of violent criminals, what are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for experience if they're going to be working in violent crime up front. Obviously, we have a lot of folks who start lower level crimes. I'm sure you did too, Craig, where you kind of get your feet under you and you learn the way of the courtroom. And then 
When it comes to hiring folks with more experience, I want to know that they are ethical, first and foremost, that they take the high road, that they know how to have professional conversations, even in high-conflict situations, and that they are going to follow the rule of law around victims' rights and around due process issues, and that they're always going to, you know, they say, as they say, wear the white hat. So, you know, we could probably talk about the assets of good prosecutors for a, a long time, but that's what's really important to me. And, and I think, too, just in this day and age, really understanding that different people are going to have different experiences in our in our communities and to have empathy and a lens for other identities and, frankly, how systemic racism has impacted our criminal justice system over the years. And do you want them to be good listeners, for example? How do you approach it? You, you've done the job for a long time. I'm a defense counsel. I don't know if you've ever served in that role, but sometimes I feel like, wow, let me do my job. Don't make an offer before you've even talked to me. But then you can't spend an eternity talking about every case. What's the right balance there? You know, I think that if you come into court every day as a professional and looking to do the right thing, then you're going to have conversations and you're going to hear people out because you want all the information that you can get as you're making decisions about people's lives. And so I had a strong reputation with the defense bar for just those reasons. And it's not because I was ever a defense attorney. It was because they'd worked with me. A lot of us had had hard cases together and they respected my way of working. And I hope to impart some of that. And I feel like I have a team that will continue to impart that on attorneys as they come into our office and excel. Do you want your top courtroom prosecutors to be competitive people? Well, all lawyers are competitive. I don't think so. I mean, maybe I I think they weed themselves out. Go ahead. Craig, I'm married to one. You're not going to talk me out of that. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a it's a competitive thing. You 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 just do the right thing as a prosecutor. That's what leads you. Could I suggest that your sample size is a little low if you're just citing your husband? Oh, well, that's the one I get the largest dose of, Craig. And he's a competitive person. No, I'm just trying to figure it out because a lot of us walk that line between competitiveness being an asset or a liability. And we're seeing it play out nationally as well. Well, you know, as a woman uh, in this day and age and having grown up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I think owning competitiveness is frankly often been frowned upon. So it's kind of a weird word to me. And I just want prosecutors not about winning. It's about being the best uh, and strongest professional and the best and strongest litigator in the courtroom. What's it like when you were in a big trial? For me, it was all consuming. I didn't think it was fair because I was single at the time and I didn't have to attend to kids or a partner. I could just go home, you know, maybe decompress with the workout and then just stay up and do an all nighter because that's what it takes. When you're in trial, there's just so much to do. I remember the late Steve Farber saying to me once as we broadcast, he said, Craig, I was a litigator, but the problem is, You just can never prepare enough. The preparation never ends. How did you balance that out, Alexis? And then what do you expect of your prosecutors? I think that people do better work when they know they can take time for their families and the things that they need to attend to. So 
I completely agree. When one is in trial, you're up to your eyeballs in it and you make it work. And then, you know, hopefully you can reschedule your dentist appointment for the following week and take care of the oil change that you've been putting off and then get back to it when the next trial calls. I agree. What about the fear factor? There are so many violent crimes out there. And gosh, I can think of some legendary ones in Jepco. I don't want to frighten people, but occasionally, do you think, hey, this is a bit of a scary job. I'm the top law enforcement officer in the first judicial district. I'm going to have to prosecute murderers, maybe even serial murderers, organized crime, drug cartels. Is there a fear factor? You know, we see some very, very upsetting things as prosecutors, but we have to remember that's a very small percentage of what we deal with and that we have to step up when those types of incidences come in our community and happen here. But in the meantime, the majority of our cases, we need to make sure we're addressing appropriately, that we're intervening appropriately, and that we're accountable to any victims and to the person charged to make sure that we're actually reducing harm. So I, I know and have seen horrific things, Craig, but that's not frankly, the majority of the work we do. But have you ever prosecuted somebody who was scary? I mean, they were violent. A lot of them stared darts into me and you kind of have to put on a veneer and you can't be intimidated as a prosecutor. You'd agree with that, right? You can't be intimidated, but you have to be human. So that's my expectation of prosecutors. I don't want people walking around like robots. So, you know, I I hope we have an office culture that acknowledges the humanity and the things that happen in our community that are hard. How do you maintain an office culture in the age of COVID? And that's really rough and God willing, it will be over soon enough, but you're going to take office under those circumstances. How tough is it and how backed up is the whole court system getting? It's quite backed up. I actually have a long meeting with our chief judge this week, and we'll be also talking with our public defender's office more because the DA's public defenders and the courts have been working on this since the beginning. And I think it's a matter of just maintaining communication, even though I, we're all sick of Zoom. But first and foremost, I want to make sure that we're keeping people healthy, whether that's witnesses and victims or my own staff. And so We're going to be upping our communications similar to what we did in the campaign in the sense of we're going to be calling people. We're going to be, you know, providing internal dialogues and places for people to chat and connect. And then we'll just keep hoping that there's a time where we can slowly resume again and frankly use our resources in the courthouse effectively and make sure we're trying the right cases. I think you will. And my goodness, you have a beautiful office waiting for you in the Taj Mahal. Well, you're not in the Taj Mahal. The courthouse is, but you've got your own building out in Jeffco. Have you talked with Pete about what furniture he's going to leave behind or how that's going to (laughs) work? No, uh, we're still talking about the budget. So the furniture isn't really high on the list. Well, that's so cool. Your job is such an important one. And if you don't mind, I just think it's important and you can take a pass on it. But I've never been more worried about the rule of law and democracy with this post-election conduct by the president of the United States and his unwillingness to have a transition. I mean, heck, your election 
was about as close as his and Pete Weir is cooperating with you. Can you just imagine? And I think it's the responsibility of lawyers to call this stuff out. So I throw it out to you. The behavior of Donald Trump, can you believe it? What are your thoughts? You know, when I was running, there was obviously a lot going on on the national level. I have a lot of, a lot of feelings about it. But I knew that by running here in this community that I love so much, I was controlling the small bit of the world that I could control and really knew that I was dealing with professionals on all sides. So happy to have a smooth transition with Pete's support. He has been in public service to this community for decades and it's really just a wealth of knowledge. So if I could download him, I would. But in the meantime, just grateful for the time we've had on FaceTime and all of the information he has provided. And I, and I know plans to continue to provide. Well, that's, that's a good answer. And I would just make my case a little bit further and point out an example of when I decided to run against my buddy, Bill Ritter. Because it was shortly after I'd won a big trial, the Holler murder trial. And then, honestly, I'd been working so hard on it. And about three days later was the opening statement in the O.J. Simpson case. And I had a little black and white TV. And I was watching it. And some news reporter, this is back before we had all that security and stuff. They took a picture of me watching it. And it was in the Rocky Mountain News. And Bill said, Gosh, Craig, do you think it's wise for you to be photographed watching TV in your DA's office? I said, well, it's not like I was watching a ball game. This case is going to affect our jury pools and the way people look at the law. And uh, we had a good laugh about it. And then I ran against him and he kicked my ass. And 10 years later, we still laugh about it. But here's the thing. I just think that this Everything is a fix and this is rigged and you can't believe this because this guy's got a motive. That's going to play out in jury pools in Jefferson County and Gilpin County. Do you know what I mean? Some people who have this deep state mentality and it could lead to mistrials and just a failure to convict people who should be convicted or vice versa. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, that'll be interesting to, to take the temperature of jurors, Craig, when we get back into the courtroom. I'm really curious to see. You know, I would tell you that having started doing jury trial work in 2000, gosh, six or seven here in the county, I think, you know, I wasn't sworn deputy till 07. I think our jury pool is was changing then, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it changes now. But I'll tell you, jurors, you can't pigeonhole them. So you got to talk to them and, and figure out where they're at. And many, many juries have surprised me over the years. So I'll, I'll be interested to see where folks are at when they come in to start serving again. Well, you are a delightful surprise. I think we've seen each other around Denver and around Jefferson County. How did you like working in Denver for the while that you were a magistrate? What did that feel like? Oh, you know, well, actually, I clerked for Bill Robbins. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, my God, my good buddy, Bill Robbins. That's how else I know you. What a great man. What a great judge. What a great prosecutor, Bill Robbins. I, I just think the world of that man. So do I. And so I clerked for Bill and had some time in Denver. You know, there's some Denver is an exciting courthouse. There was always a lot going on. Um, and when I came back as a magistrate judge, which was fantastic, it was at a time of new leadership in Denver. Teresa 
John was and is the head of the county court. And then we had Beth taking over with Helen Morgan as her number two, doing a lot of work on behavioral health issues in the community. And I served mostly in courtroom 2300. And it was really exciting to be part of such an amazing group of leaders. But for that experience and seeing people really making changes and thinking about criminal justice in new ways, I don't know if I would have run for office. See, now we've come full circle. Shouldn't Denver really be the first judicial district, given what you just said? Well, someone slapped a number two on it, Craig, so I don't know how to help I you. know, but you know, Teresa Spahn and I go way back, and her big husband, Adam Gollin, worked with my brother, who's a lawyer, and my sister-in-law, who's a lawyer, and it's a small world in the legal community, right? And Billy Robbins, they just don't make people finer than him, and I need to get him in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Alexis, you've given me so much time. You're a busy mother. You've got the biggest job. And you're a wonderful interview. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Thanks so much, Craig. Appreciate your interest in the race. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can, they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite just the finances don't make sense to them so you don't want to pick that type of person you want to pick somebody who can understand finances you want to pick somebody who's trustworthy who will carry out your decisions and if you can do it you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt dan levitt sandler training hi dan craig sent me craig silverman that's him Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig. And Tuppy sent you. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, it's a joy to welcome back a winner to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He's the guy who got Prop 113 started. 
and he is a return visitor, Michael Foot, Senator Foot. Welcome back. Hey, Craig. Thanks a lot for having me back. I guess this is my third time, so um, I must not sound too bad when I'm on your previous shows. So I, I appreciate no, you. No, you are fantastic. And you serve a lot of different interests. For me, I always need a lawyer for Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, sometimes two or three. But you are a heck of a lawyer. You're a former prosecutor. You made your way into elective office. You've been really doing great things for the community. And you bring a bolder perspective to a Denver guy like me. Sure, I spent three years up there at CU Law School, but you are bolder. Would you agree? Well, Craig, actually, that's a little bone of contention because I represent eastern Boulder County. I live in Lafayette. We're not the same thing as Boulder City, I just have to tell you. Okay. Well, once I get past Broomfield, I just lump everything <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the problem of everyone at the Capitol as well. But actually, it is the case that Longmont, Lafayette, Louisville, and the eastern part of the county does have kind of a different viewpoint on things. Although, of course, I love visiting Boulder and riding my bike through Boulder, but we're not the same as Boulder. Well, let's talk about national popular vote. You were instrumental. Tell everybody the history and how elated you must be at the outcome and whether it will actually come into play. Yeah, Craig, this is a great conversation. Uh, there's plenty to talk about, and I won't take up the entire podcast to talk about national popular vote. So I'll try to summarize it uh, the best I can. But, you know, um, chronologically, this whole thing started, at least in Colorado, for me, when I introduced the bill on the first day of session back in 2019. So over, you know, almost two years ago. And I was the Senate sponsor. We introduced it in the Senate. The two House sponsors were Representatives Sirota and Arndt, and they passed the bill in the House. But there was a lot of debate when we introduced the bill. And, and just to be clear, it was the bill to put Colorado into the National Popular Vote Agreement. And uh, at that time, I think there was maybe 13 states plus Washington, D.C. that were part of the agreement. And Colorado became, I think, the 14th or so. And there was a couple of other ones that signed on after Colorado, Oregon, and uh, New Mexico were the other ones that signed on. So anyway, we passed the bill, although it was quite contentious. There was a lot of opposition. And the bill was signed by Governor Polis back in March of 2019. And we kind of thought that was the end of it, because that's usually the end of it, except for maybe people trying to repeal it the year after. But as you know, as I think the voters of the state know at this point, there was an effort to put a veto referendum on the ballot. The effort was successful. The opponents gathered enough signatures to put it on the ballot. So it became Proposition 113. And uh, we won 52 percent of the vote to keep it in the law. So I'm really happy about that. What's really interesting is that the whole issue about the national popular vote and the Electoral College how we elect our president is kind of a bigger picture, maybe somewhat esoteric type of discussion. But, you know, 1.6 million Coloradans got it, and they decided that we should elect our president a different way. And so that we, we passed it, and now we're just awaiting for other states to come on board before it actually goes into effect. Well, there are three guys in my mind who deserve credit. You, of course, championing it in Colorado. Jesse Wegman, who is also a lawyer, he was in the lounge a few weeks ago, 
He's on the editorial board of the New York Times. He wrote a book about how the electoral colleges has uh, vestiges and artifacts of slavery, which I hadn't really thought about before. But the third guy who really made this happen, and let's give him credit, Donald J. Trump. Don't you think? Right. And Jesse is a great author. I read his book. I would recommend it to anybody about uh, the Electoral College, and it includes information about the national popular vote. So what's interesting, you mentioned about President Trump. What's interesting, in my opinion, is I think that the fact that Donald Trump was elected the way he was back in 2016 in a divergent election, meaning losing the popular vote but still winning the Electoral College, I think is something that has really harmed the national popular vote movement in many ways. Because prior to 2016, the movement was, well, the movement still is a bipartisan movement, but you would never know it from the elected official debate or a lot of times what you see on social media. They just assume it's a democratic movement. But it started back in the mid-2000s as a very bipartisan movement. A number of Republicans have been on board historically, although some like Tom Tancredo, for example, changed his position after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. So after 2016, and the way that Trump was elected, it became much more of a partisan issue and controversial because of that. So actually, I think it's become harder to get conservatives and Republicans on board with the national popular vote after the 2016 election, which is ironic in a place like Colorado, because In Colorado, we're pretty much a blue state at this point, at least for the purposes of the presidential race. So Republican votes in the state of Colorado for president are fairly meaningless since 2008 and will continue to be so, I think, for the foreseeable future. They're the ones that would benefit the most from a national popular vote, meaning Colorado Republicans. But the elected officials in particular and a lot of conservatives still opposed it. I mean, when one person equals one vote throughout the entire country, we all win. But I just find it ironic that we have to deal with a lot of Republican opposition. And I think a lot of it is just because of the way that Trump was elected in 2016. Right. But think about the fallout from 2020, the tactics he's adopting in Michigan, Pennsylvania. I'm sure you read that Barton Gilman piece in The Atlantic for saging this strategy of Donald Trump to get around using the Electoral College, state legislatures. This is really making a case for, hey, let's just tabulate the popular vote instead of this craziness. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm not sure you probably don't want to talk about national popular vote the entire podcast, but I'll just I'll I'll just say that you're exactly right in that the national popular vote would actually be an antidote to that kind of those those kinds of games and that kind of shenanigans. I mean, when you tabulate the national popular vote, you know who won. And uh, in the case of the 2020 election, at this point, I think Biden is up by about 6 million votes nationwide. So the margin of victory is typically going to be... 6 million, right. 6 million yeah. votes. Right. So the margin of victory is going to be pretty pretty big, typically under a national popular vote, like say a million votes right? or you know, even three quarters of a million, whatever, which is a lot different than a state really close like Georgia or Arizona, where if you can somehow or another flip 10,000 votes, you you can flip the entire election. But what would um, happen, Mike, if it came down to like 20 votes? Uh, under the popular vote? Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, then you could have the same kind of scenario that you have now, which is that a small number of votes can flip the election. A nationwide and then, recount? 
Well, you can't really do a nationwide recount because you don't have a nationwide vote. Um, so, you know, it's not federalized. It's state by state. So there would probably be uh, recount efforts in some of the states that are really close. Uh, you know, if you, even if you have a vote that's, say, 20 popular votes throughout the entire country, there's still going to be some states, many states that aren't close within those states, I would think. At but, some point, don't you have to have a different kind of competition, like who could climb a mountain faster? You would win that one. What about your political aspirations? And tell everybody your own electoral history. Have you ever lost? Uh, well, you know, yes. Like anyone in politics long enough, you you end up losing races. I mean, I, I, I ran for the first time in 2012, started in 2011 for the state representative seat, HD12 in eastern Boulder County. Won the primary, won the general, and won re-elections there. The Boulder district attorney seat opened up somewhat unexpectedly back in 2018. And I ran for that, but did not win that primary, unfortunately. So after that, though, there was another opening that came about, which was for the Senate seat in eastern Boulder County, because the senator at the time got elected to a different office in the county commission in Boulder County. So I was appointed to that through the uh, appointing committee. And I did that for two years back in 2018 or, you know, 2019, 2020 sessions. Decided not to run again, mainly because I wanted to focus more on my private law practice. And, you know, I'd been at it for eight years, and eight years is a long time in elected office. So I just decided I needed to not be elected anymore. And, you know, I think it was a good decision for me personally, although certainly I missed certain aspects of it. But uh, I'm glad I had the opportunity to do it, but I just couldn't see doing it for another four years. Well, tell us about your law practice. It's just what Colorado needs, another lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, you can never have too many lawyers, right? So my law practice right now focuses on state and local government matters of many types. So it's anything from land use to election law to um, energy issues to environmental law, litigation. And so I I focus uh, on a lot of those things, you know, including agency types of things like at the state level, you know, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, Public Utilities Commission, those types of things. So I've my familiarity with many of those through my legislative career and the litigation aspect. Yeah, no, you're a good resource and good luck with that. And how about raising a family? We each have two kids and a spouse. It's tough in COVID times, but I sort of thank God that my kids are kind of self-sufficient. They drive, got a kid in college, got a kid who's a senior in high school and I don't have to explain things to them. They explain things to me. But what about you? (laughs) I've got an 11-year-old daughter and an almost 9-year-old daughter, and they also explain things to me. (laughs) So you're not in uh, any strange category there. But no, so, you know, one of the advantages of actually not running for office again and not being elected, or at least I won't be elected here very shortly at the end of the year, is being able to spend more time with them and being able to be more involved in their lives. And I'm, I'm very happy to be able to do that. You know, my 11-year-old and my 9-year-old, almost 9-year-old, the, since the pandemic started, they've actually gotten into horseback riding. And that's been a great activity to do during the pandemic because you're outside, you can socially distance, and they're not sitting at the screen all day. And so I, I'm, I'm really happy that they've really gotten involved in that activity, and, and we've been encouraging that. And as a matter of fact, as we're talking right now, they're out at the horse farm and and riding horses, and they'll do that until it gets completely pitch dark once again. 
and they'll come home for dinner and do it again tomorrow after school. Nice. I had a sister, Nancy, who did that. She competed in Chimkanas. I think that was the word. She didn't let me really go or even touch her horse, buddy, but I know the power of horses, and she turned out great, and I'm sure your daughters will as well. I'd just like you to reassure me, smart guy that you are, about what's ahead of us. I'm so worried about Donald Trump attacking democracy and lawyers going along with it. I wonder sometimes, Mike, about that admonition that we're always supposed to be on the right side of the law and not misstate things or just spew bullshit, right? And I see Jenna Ellis, a Colorado lawyer who I know and I used to respect, Rudy Giuliani, doing the bidding of Donald Trump, which is a direct attack on democracy. Am I overstating this? I'm worried the guy won't leave, too. I, 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 I don't like to see the courts used this way. What about you? The war on truth, as I've put it, and others I think have as well, has been one of the things we've seen through the Trump presidency, and it's been one of the most distressing things for me, where the so-called alternative facts and just the fact that you can make stuff up has been so rampant. Certainly we've seen that from his attorneys at their press conferences and their public statements, but you notice they're not making any progress whatsoever in the courts because, of course, in the courts, the truth still does matter and evidence still does matter, which I'm very happy about. So they're not making any progress in the courts, but they can make pronouncements all they want outside of court. And I guess they can do that. I think we should stop paying attention to them, frankly, because that just helps them. And hopefully we'll just they won't be able to press their case too much more in court. I just wonder, and if I was Jenna Ellis's lawyer, I'd say, wow, you're kind of gambling with your license when you tweet that everybody knows the president won big and that the election was rigged. I mean, come on, isn't that you're the president's lawyer? Did you see where a bunch of law firms declined to get involved because of our professional responsibilities? Yeah, truth should matter whether or not you're a lawyer or any other profession. And unfortunately, we've seen the truth not really mattering with a lot of folks. And that's that's been a very depressing aspect of the last four years. You know, it used to be in political office or otherwise, people could say things that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but at least they would have some basis and something that they could justify saying it. But now that's just not the case, or at least it hasn't been the case with a lot of folks attached to the current president. And I think the same goes for Jenna Ellis and Rudy Giuliani as well. But like I said, I don't think they're making any progress in court, which I think is a good thing. That's right. But, for example, they did a Georgia recount and a couple thousand ballots were found that weren't counted. The majority were for Trump. And it was not nearly enough, but it gives them cause to say, you see, you see how elections aren't perfect. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. We know elections aren't perfect, right? Nobody is saying you're going to get the same number. It's like a big store matching the books to the penny every day. I don't think it happens, does it? Well, I don't think so. I mean, human error is always part of any system, including the election systems. But I think certainly here in Colorado, I can speak to it. They do a really good job and get to as close as zero errors as humanly possible. But if you dig far enough, you're going to find an errant thing here, here and there. And that's what they found in Georgia. That's good that they found it. But certainly it doesn't affect the outcome at the end of the day. 
Well, we visit every couple of years. Two years from now, do you think the Democrats and the Republicans will be working together? Will we become more uh, convivial or further divided? Unfortunately, I'm going to take a little bit of a pessimistic view on that score. And, and the reason why is because I look back to recent history. And back when Obama was elected in the fall of 2008, we know now that the Republican leadership and the Congress got together within a couple of days and laid out an agenda about how they were going to oppose everything Obama did. And they were pretty successful in that in many regards. And I just don't see that changing from the Senate. So, you know, I think our next president is going to have to use executive orders and just staffing with the right personnel and hopefully getting us back on the right track when it comes to the truth mattering again and competence mattering again. Mike Fudd, are you giving up on Georgia? Do you think <laughs> that it's impossible for Warnock and Johnny Ossoff to win? No, I I don't want to I don't want to say that. I mean, I'm not giving up on it, but uh, you know, I think it's going to be difficult just based on the fact that Democrats had a tough time picking up Senate seats. Colorado was an exception, Arizona was an exception. But I'd love to see it where it's a 50-50 split. But even even if it's a 50-50 split with the tiebreak going to the new vice president, there's still a number of difficult issues to get through. I mean, not every Democrat is going to vote the same way. They're not going to vote lockstep. And I think that's one of the differences between the Democratic and Republican parties. But and Joe Biden's a moderate. Hasn't that guy stepped up and really performed? I, I think he's hit a different gear. I like the guy more than I ever have. But enough about what I like. Let me tell you what the people like. What can bring people together? The answer is right in front of us, Bikefoot. Would you agree that Aurora and Colorado Springs are really very different kinds of cities. Yes, have not lived in either of those recently, but I'll agree with that. All right. You know what brought them together? Uh, in and out Burger. Yes. <laughs> if it was in Boulder, would it be as big? Um, yeah, probably. I think mainly because, of course, you can travel from all around to go to an in and out Burger. So you would have a lot of people from outside of Boulder traveling into Boulder at that point in time. What about Boulderites? What about Lafayette? people. Yeah. Well, I mean, most people like a good burger, right? Absolutely. But I'm not going to wait in line for forever. But it just shows people are starved for good burgers and it unites everybody. And I hope two years from now, everybody's getting along better. And Trump and Trumpism is rejected. That's my Sabbath prayer. I really appreciate you doing this interview late on a Friday evening, Mike Foote. And I wish the best to you and your family and your new law practice. Want to give a shout out? How can people hire you? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Craig, for having me. I really appreciate our conversations over the years. You can just get in touch with me. You can look, look it up on the internet, but just uh, Foot Law Firm. You can just look me up on the internet as well, personally, and just get in touch that way. But any kind of state or local government matter, is one that uh, I'll take a look at and hopefully can help people out with. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Happy Thanksgiving. Okay, you too, Craig. Thanks again. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades. 
with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do. And my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do. And I don't smile all the time. But Dan Levitt is fun to talk to. And he will give you a great deal if you say Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture. Smile back. 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. For the best possible deal, tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBL LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Mr. Henry Gunders, what an honor to speak to you. Tell our audience a little about yourself. Where were you born? And give us the day and the year. I was born on the 30th day of June in 1924. Yes, you heard right, 1924. June 30, 1924. Where were you born, Henry? I was born in Munich, Bavaria, which is in the south of Germany, and essentially a Catholic country. But you were not a Catholic. Your name was Gunderheimer. You were from a Jewish family. Tell us about your parents. What did they do to support the family? My parents ran a multi-general business that imported and exported very large quantities of coffee and tea, mostly from Asia and Africa. That occurred until the Hitler regime took over, which we might remember occurred when he was chosen as the Reich Consulate, was the name, which was in 1933. And life was never the same after that. And in fact, that's the first subject that uh, I will be talking about. Well, tell us about that. Pre-war Germany, Hitler's rise to power. You were, what, nine years old? What do you remember about that? How frightening was it? Let me tell you a little story. I have a grandmother who was made of pure iron and smart as hell. 
and she could see inflation coming in Germany. If you were aware it was the end of the week, you would get the Friday. So where's your wheelbarrow? And you would say, with great surprise, wheelbarrow. I don't take a wheelbarrow to work. And the other person would say, well, this Friday you should. And you would say, why is that? Because you're going to need a wheelbarrow to accommodate all the German paper currency that has become nearly worthless. You get the idea? I do. Your grandmother, what was her name? Was she your maternal grandmother or paternal? And that was my maternal grandmother, who was born in northern Germany, that is now Lithuania. But let me finish. The next thing that happened was school. I was, uh, it was 1930, six years old, which made me just start school, and I loved to play soccer. So I played soccer on the team the first year, and then the summer came, and the next year I go over to the school, and I see the soccer team assembled in the corner. Well, that was normal. What wasn't normal was the reception that I got. After a while, I see they're all pointing to me, and I walk over and I say, what's wrong? I've always played the forward, the right forward. And one of the kids who was my best friend, Johann Walter was his name, says, you know, my father works at the BMW faculty. And he's a member of a new trade union, and he has just been forced to join it. And he told me that I can't talk to you anymore because you're Jewish. I said, yes, but why? He says, that's all he said. I don't know why. So here I am. Try and put yourself in my shoes. You're six years old. You have been, if anything, the best soccer player on the team. And now somebody comes over and tells you they don't want you to play with them anymore because of where you go to church. What reaction would you have? I'll tell you what mine was. I was crushed. Everybody in my school was pretty, pretty well Protestant. But I survived and I found some other friend in the Jewish community. But now it gets really interesting. Are you ready? Yes. Well, here's what happens. Adolf Hitler, among other things, wanted to prove to the world that Germany, and German in particular, was a word for superb, outstanding. What better way to prove that to the world than to have the Olympics in Berlin? Now, you're not old enough to remember 1936, but I'm very much old enough. I was 12 years old. I was born 1924, so not 12 years old, 1936 Olympics. Every high school had its own Olympic team in every possible field. The one that I ran on was 100 meters. The 100 meters was my best 
distance easily. And in our high school, I ran it at a better time than anybody else. A couple of weeks later, the champions of each of the high schools get together to put together the best Munich team from high schools. We get out to this big field, visualize a football field, only half as big. And what's in the football field? People. It's jammed from top to bottom. And in the middle, in the field, are three boxes, card boxes. They have different colors. One is painted gold, one is painted silver, one is painted bronze. My name is called out after the race, where I finished second. Two gentlemen come and escort me to the center of the stadium. And they lift me up and put me on the silver box. And I stand there not particularly surprised because Everybody knew that's what's going to happen in the Olympics. But then nothing happens for quite a while. I can't figure out why. Pretty soon, the same two gentlemen come up and said, come with us. And they held me each by my arm and walked me out of the stadium. As I'm walking out of the stadium, I see that the winner of the bronze is getting off the bronze and going on the silver one. The explanation to the stadium was that the previous runner, for personal reasons, cannot accept his medal. And so we have asked the next runner to take his place. So what am I doing? I'm walking out of the stadium. If you think that I was downcast, you will be mistaken. If you think that I was in a rage, you would also be mistaken. Here is where I was. I said to myself, Henry, just think a little bit. Think, think a little longer term. Is there anybody that can take away the fact that you ran the second fastest under meter in the Munich version of the Olympics? And the answer is no. So what the hell are you feeling rejected about? And I lifted my head up, and that's the moment where I started to become a man. Wow. And he realized that we have a lot in common because that made you a sober man just like me. Yes. No, that that's tremendous. You had your own self-pride, but you were living in a terrible situation where Jews were not allowed to come in second in the Munich Olympics. What a comeuppance then. When Jesse Owens won the 100 meter in front of Hitler, how did that make you feel? I had wiped it from my plate. It was just one of many things where to rethink what the position of people that go to the same synagogue that you and I go to should be permitted to. So I was ripe to do exactly what I did, which was raise my head up and walk out. Did you determine to get out of the country? Was that on your mind after things like this happened? First you get excluded from a soccer team, now you're not allowed to win a track and field award. At what point did you and your family decide, we have to get out of Germany? 
Well, listen to this. I had uh, a relative girlfriend. She was 12, just like me. And her father was the founder and owner of a large private bank. His name was Klopfer. On Saturday mornings, we would get up early, go to the Bavarian Opera House and pick up the cheap tickets. And then we'd go to her house and have breakfast. I'd listen to her practice and piano. She was a wonderful player. About an hour later, the door opens, her father comes in. Right next to the entry hall is a very large room that's divided in the middle by room fitted into half. When I was in the room, it was divided because my girlfriend was practicing the violin. When her father came in, the first thing he did is to close it. And he said to me, Heinrich, come here. I sat down with him. He said, what I'm going to tell him, you're not to say to another soul except your father. I said, what, why? He says, Henry, you're smart. What do we do every Christmas? He says, we, we always go to St. Moritz for the skiing. He said, you're right. And you know what? That's exactly what we're going to do this year. It's only two months away. I said, well, that's what I expected. Why are you telling me this? He said, there's one difference. I said, difference? What difference? He said, this year, we're not coming back. I said, what? Not coming back? He says, no. He said, I have a private bank. Half my assets are in Sears and the other half are in New York, and I've been doing this ever since Hitler was elected because I knew that he's going to put me out of business. Well, it's too late. I said, but what are you going to do with this beautiful apartment and with Ellie's piano and violins and other things she wants to carry? He says, we're going to leave it. I said, leave it? Just leave it? He says, yes. He says, if we leave it, nobody will pay attention. If we have a whole bunch of stuff we're logging, everybody's going to want to know what is this all about. So he says, you go home, get your father in a private room, shut the door, and tell him what I just told you, and tell him to get his butt out of Germany as quick as you can. I was shaken up. I went home. My father came. I told him the message that I had gotten, and he was quiet for a long time. And he said, Henry, here's a little history. He said, when World War I started out, I was 18 years old, and I enrolled in the German army. I was in the army over four years. I fought two and a half years in the cavalry in France and the remainder and the artillery in Russia. The Golden Cross First Class, issued by the German government. Nobody will touch us. Henry says, listen carefully. When the last Jew leaving Germany gets up 
and goes to the last train to the French border, we will be that last group. And within a year, he was afraid of his life and ours. So that answers your question. So at first, your father was resistant, but ultimately he saw the writing on the wall just like your girlfriend's father did. Were you aware of Adolf Hitler? Were you following him on the radio? Was that the way you got his speeches? Oh, you couldn't know. You couldn't help it. We have a politician now with some very similar characteristics. What do you mean, uh, a politician with similar characteristics? How do you, when do you first remember learning about Adolf Hitler and then listening to him, and how did it affect you? Well, the first, first effect was I had nobody to play with. I attended a local high school. I say without shame that I was an excellent student. I was halfway through my sophomore year when the principal of the high school wrote a note to my father saying that my father was expected in his office at a particular time. My father showed up alone, as it indicated. And when he came out, he said, well, Henry, you're going to have a lot of free time. I said, what? He says, free time. I said, I don't understand. He says, I think I understand. I said, talk to me. He said, the principal said that you are now at a point where you stand in constant danger of physical harm because of your religion, nothing else. And I cannot and will not accept the responsibility for your personal safety. So you went to my high school. So this is how you find stuff out. That was the end of your high school as a sophomore. It's almost like COVID where you can't go anymore. But here, the problem was you being Jewish and... Did they get rid of all the Jews in the school, or was it because you were so prominent as an outstanding student and athlete? I have no idea. I'm I'm assuming that there was a commandment that said that certain students who do not have Aryan... The, The students who are not Aryan could no longer be part of the school? That's correct. The same thing happened if you had a business. When you applied for your annual corporate practice, you were denied the practice. My father had to fold his business. He sold it for bobcats, as we say. And it was a business that had been three generations. And I was taught when I was a little kid that that was going to be my business. And I would go after school and... Uh, Stock shelves. That dream went out the window in Nazi Germany. How did you get out? How old were you when you got out? I was 14 years and seven months old. So that was not long after you were told you could no longer go to high school where you were excelling. That's correct. How did you get out? What was the route? My children grandfather, who was in the tobacco business in Germany, he was in a very large end of the tobacco business. 
he exported all. He had a son who was living in Augusta, Georgia. His son had started in business in the 20s, had become exceedingly wealthy. The United States had an arrangement, not generally known, under which if a certain sum of money is deposited in the United States in the right kind of an account, after a certain number of years, having been allowed into the country, all the funds that were put on your account were returned to you less anything that was spent using taxpayer money, German taxpayer money. And fortunately, my uncle was wealthy, and he lives in Augusta, Georgia, and he bought a Savita. No Ellis Island for Henry. No Ellis Island. You, no. you got out of there. But what about the rest of your family? Did your whole family get out, or were people no. left behind and perished? I could tell you all over the world. I could start with Shanghai. I would go to the Philippines. I could go to Argentina. I, I haven't even started. The family went wherever they could go and have some chance of remaining alive and carving out a living. So did all the Gunderheimers get out of Germany? No, my grandmother and her daughter and her daughter's girlfriend all died in Theresienstadt. A death camp. Theresienstadt was one of the uh, camps that were kept. If you went there, either one of two things happened. You were interviewed and somebody decided that you were worth more dead than alive, in which case they would told, tell you where to stand. If it was the opposite, if you were more alive than dead, then you'd stand on the other side. My grandmother was already in her late 70s. She was death, she was death as a post, and she was a miracle with the scissors thread and repairing German army soldiers' clothes. So she never went to the oven. Her daughter and her granddaughter went. And so did your grandma survive the Holocaust? Yes, she did. Not only that, I found her personally in Switzerland after the war, brought her to Boston. And my pleasant memory is hearing her singing when she was in her 80s while she was doing pots and pans in my parents' kitchen. That's amazing. Now, your own mother died when you were only one years old. Who raised you? Yeah. Was it your grandmother who raised you? Who was responsible for the upbringing of young Henry? Well, young Henry was brought up by his aunt who was high school age for four years, at which point my father remarried. I've already told you, I've already told you, and it must be getting boring. Is it getting boring yet? No, not at all. I just wonder if you 
ever in, when did you first see the swastika and Nazis on the streets of Munich? And how did you feel as a young Jewish boy in Germany? Well, my father and I were coming home when I was seven years old. And all of a sudden, all the streets were blocked by uh, SS vehicles. It was very shortly after the change, groups of Mercedes came pouring throughout, throughout. The next day, we found out that there was a push. You know what the word push means. So like a coup where there's a government takeover? Exactly. There was a large group of people who wanted Hitler out, and they plotted privately to assassinate him. And one of the people in the group was a spy who was planted there. And that very night, all the members of that group were killed. You got out before the war, thank God. You came to America, and being born in 1924, that put you at 18 years old in 1942 when the war was really raging. Tell everybody what you did once you got to America to participate in the war and fighting Hitler. Well, excuse me, but in 1938, the war was not raging. The war that was raging was a war in Spain. That was Hitler's trial war to try out some of his new hardware. The war started in the early night of the first day of August of the same year, and it was directed by Germany with tanks against Poland. Poland put into the field its renowned cavalry. Yeah, you heard me right. That's all they had to fight the German tanks. That did not last long. August 1, 1939 is when World War II started in Europe, but it didn't start for America until Pearl Harbor, and then we declared war on Germany. That's why I advanced it to... Well, actually, the war was declared by Roosevelt on the same day as the Pearl Harbor attack. Right. The day that will live in infamy. You were in America. What do you remember about Pearl Harbor Day? Where were you living? Were you in Georgia? Were you somewhere else in America? Where were you at that point? What I remember on Pearl Harbor Day was that I would be back in Germany very soon. Only this time I will be carrying an American machine gun. How did you get in the military? Did you go down and enlist? Were you already an American citizen? No. As soon as we had heard about Pearl Harbor, the American Army started building something that we had never had before, and it was the American Army ski troops. And I volunteered and enlisted in the U.S. Army ski troops. Now you're talking some Colorado stuff. Did you come That's to Colorado right. to be part of the 10th Mountain Division? 87th Infantry, number C. The highest I ever got was a corporal. Tell us about your training and what you thought when you first came to Colorado to get involved. 
I love Colorado. It was I grew up in mountain country. Tell us about the training. What part of Colorado, if you remember, and what level of a skier are you? I know your son Dave Gunders is a masterful skier. Did he get that from his dad? My father was not a mountain man. I was. The answer to your question is that uh, that was a brand new camp being built by the name of Camp Hale, H-A-L-E. Hale was a hero of the war, I forget for what. It was placed at the precise point where water flows east and west. At Tennessee Pass was the place. When I got to Tennessee Pass, we had two sections of barracks and two others that were being built. We already had the 86 that had come and shortly went to the Aleutian Islands. You remember the Aleutian Islands? Sure. The rest of us just sat there, and there was a Scandinavian group also under American Army, and these were all the Scandinavians that either by choice or necessity were marooned in the United States when Pearl Harbor occurred. Now, you came over when you were 14. At what point did you become an American citizen? In April of 1945, which was the day I received my honorable discharge. Well, you got a discharge, but I'm wondering how you got into the Army. Did you become an automatic citizen when you arrived, or did you have to go through a naturalization process? No, you were issued a, a document, and the document had your name and all of the physical and other data, and it was very thoroughly stamped, saying this would become valid upon receipt of an honorable discharge from the United States Army, 10th Mountain Division. I understand. So it's sort of like today, even if you were not an American citizen, you were allowed to participate in the military. And if you did well, that led to citizenship. Am I right? Absolutely right. Do you want to laugh? Sure. Officially, I was referred to as an enemy alien. Now, why would that be? Here, I'm in the Army, and all of my IE stuff has enemy alien on it. Because when we left Germany, we still have a German passport. So where did we go? We went to France. France didn't give us a French passport. We came to the United States. They gave us the enemy alien passport. So except for the German passport, we were stateless. You can't be stateless in the war. Did you see action during the war? Did, don't try. Don't, don't ever try it. No, I won't. Did, did, did you fight in World War II? Were you able to go back to Germany and fight the Nazis? Yeah. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, the unit that I was with was the 10th Mountain Infantry. Where did you see battle? They fought in Italy halfway. The Monte Cassino, does that ring up well? Look in your geography book. Monte Cassino is in the middle of uh, Italy, 
and it basically covers that very long, slim air before you get up the south hills of Rome. And it was a such a place the American army had to penetrate in order to be able to get its southern forces where it could fight up north where the war was going on with German troops. Monte Cassino was a very large facility. It had been in German hands for at least two years when Germany formed an association and it had been heavily fortified to the point where it was impervious to the biggest stuff that the U.S. Army Air Force could lay down. So it had to be literally liberated by being dug out one soldier at a time. Fortunately, not long before that, I was transferred to another unit on the ground of my being able to speak multiple languages that were needed and would be needed in the uh, upcoming occupation. So how many different languages did you speak at the time? Just two very fluently. German and English? No, my English was sparse, but I spoke French fluently. So you spoke French and German? I studied it in, in school in German. Wow. And the 10th Mountain Division, have you been back for any reunions? Are you guys... No, I cut off all my relationships to all my military experience. So that was not going to be the rest of my life. So that was a conscious break on your part. How long were you in the military during World War II? Pretty close to three years. Did you encounter any Nazis? Were you able to fight? Did you make it back to Germany at all? I commanded a communication battalion and I never raised a gun or a machine gun in anger, nor was I ever shot at. Were you frightened being part of the troops during World War II? Were you scared for your life? If somebody had pointed a gun or a cannon at me, yes, I would have been frightened. But it didn't happen. We had a very simple job. It was communication. What are the communications? A way for military groups to communicate. And how did we do that? We laid down wire. Did we ever lay down wire when there was shooting going on? Yes, quite often. So you were the communications king. Did you have an understanding of what was going on in Germany? Were you aware of the Holocaust and how horrible it had become? Not until pretty close to the end of the war. No, the soldiers are the soldiers are always the last ones who really know what's going on. You know what's going on and what you are and no place else. Have you ever returned to Munich, the place of your birth? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, I went to the cemetery. I found my mother's grave. She died when I was very young. And my grandparents and another generation back. It's about 15 kilometers north of Munich. 
and it is still there in excellent condition. I appreciate your time immensely. Can you help us out one thing, Henry Gunders? We all admire your son, Dave Gunders. He is the troubadour of our show. Tell us about raising a troubadour like Dave Gunders. Did you put some special grooming on him? How do you raise a fellow like Dave Gunders? My, our son, Dave Gunders, is as good, a good a human being as you will ever be fortunate to meet. How did he get that way? He had a mother who unfortunately died some years ago. I think you know his father is 96 and still going reasonably strong. And I can't add anything to what I said. They don't come better than my son. I agree with that. Henry Gunders, thank you for your service. Thank you for being such a great parent as evidenced by your son, Dave Gunders. I really appreciate the time. And your last word, what would you say to the people of Colorado and the world who are listening to this? I would say, let us never forget hope because I have lived in my long life in periods much more dangerous and much less hopeful than what we have now. Great last words. Thank you, Henry Gunders. Really appreciate you and what you have done with your wonderful life. Thank you, sir.
Wow, what a show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you to my guests, Alexis King. Good luck in your new job. Mike Foot. same for you. Andrew Strutman, you will be successful unless you get purged. I hope that doesn't happen. And how about Henry Gunders? I salute you, sir, and your troubadour son, David Gunders. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. Craig Silverman.